The most Escape. effective way to hack is quickly. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 44 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the living room of Sphere of Provo, Utah. We have Joe Eames. Hi. Merrick Christensen. What's up, guys? Tim Caswell. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Dave Herman. Hi there. So, Dave, you haven't been on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so, I work for Mozilla. Um, I uh, have sort of helped create this new department called Mozilla Research, where we do a whole bunch of web platform experiments and, and uh, new technology for the web. And uh, I also am on uh, the horribly named TC39, the uh, standards organization for ECMAScript, working on the next edition of the JavaScript standard. Cool. Oh, and I, I wrote this book. <laughs> this book. You didn't just read it and then become an expert on the book and then come <laughs> on the podcast about it. So, so I heard about this book. sweet. So I'm I'm a little curious when you started writing the book. I mean, what what was the what was the idea behind it? What what inspired it? To tell the truth, I had no intention of writing a book. It didn't occur to me. But um, the publishers reached out to me. Um, I guess they heard of me through TC39. You know, maybe ES Discuss or something. Uh, but they said, okay, well, th- we've got this series, this effective series, and I was very familiar with Effective C++, which I think is a great book. And I really like the format. And just when they approached me, I thought, you know, I, I kind of do have a few things to say about JavaScript. This could be a fun uh, a fun project. Just, I, I think what I really enjoyed about it was just getting to collect my thoughts in one place. Um, so it, it really just sort of was un, unexpected. I'm just amazed by the number of things that you came up with. Not that I know that JavaScript doesn't have just tons and tons and tons of really just awesome nooks and crannies to look at. But like, I can think of like 10 things that would be useful to say. So the fact that you came up with 68 of them is just amazing. It kind of, it kind of, uh, happened, you know, organically. It was like, okay, well, I sort of have some topics that I could talk about. And then when I thought about those topics, I started, um, drilling down and, and before you know it, you start realizing, wow, well, I should really talk about this. And, oh, well, if I talk about this, I got to talk about that. And it just kind of builds up from there. I ended up having to cut some things. So you didn't like start out with like 65 ways, but off the top of your list and just add three. (laughs) No, uh, we're also lucky that the number wasn't something else. Uh, but (laughs) It, it it really was. I had no number in mind ahead of time. I didn't even know till I finished and counted them up. So no one has said this yet, but the book is amazing, and it is. it's it's the best JavaScript book I've ever read by far. Same. Um, so it's thanks for writing it. It's awesome. Thanks. I've Thank actually you. seen lots of people like congratulating or talking about how awesome it is too. So it seems like everyone really likes it. And I wondered if it's gone to your head and now you make people call you D-Money or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, I get enough angry people about, uh, uh, you know, various opinions about JavaScript that it, it, it bounces out of my head. Yeah. No, I, I have gotten a lot of good feedback and I, I really had no idea. Um, I, it's kind of terrifying. I had no idea how scary it is to write a book, but, uh, I've, I've just, I didn't know how it was going to be received, so I've been really pleasantly surprised that people seem to be happy with it. So, yeah, so what, I, I have so, to ask, yeah. what is what the most controversial, controversial part of the book? Controversial. What, what, what is the part that people are getting mad at you about? You know, uh, they haven't gotten mad at me yet about the book. That, you know, I get more opinions about ES6 than I do about the book. But it hasn't been out for very long, so I'm sort of waiting for, you know, waiting to hear more. Uh, I've certainly gotten a share of um, 
typos. And the most embarrassing thing was that I kind of misused the term currying. Uh, item 26 says use bind to curry functions. I really should have said use bind for partial application. Uh, and as a programming language nerd, I should have known better. But um, yeah, don't you have a PhD in computer science? And you do I do programming languages. Yes, my PhD did your advisor is like call you up and chew you out or something. <laughs> you know, my advisor didn't point it out, so uh, maybe we could we, maybe we could uh, shift the blame on him. It was actually Reg <laughs> Braithwaite who goes by Roggenwald, um, very yeah, well known. Yeah. Uh, Ruby hacker and JavaScript hacker, CoffeeScript hacker. Um, he pointed it out to me. Um, he's also working on a book uh, where he talks a lot about partial application and currying. So he cares. He cares about that quite a bit. And uh, yeah, it's totally embarrassing to have a, a PhD in programming languages and get a, a PL term wrong. But uh, presumably, I'll be able to fix that in the second edition. So um, it, they're going to revoke your PhD commit bit. Oh, undoubtedly. I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. But uh, I, I guess if I were going to guess what's going to end up being the most controversial, it might be that when I'm talking about objects and prototypes, I spend a fair amount of time talking about how to write in a class-like style. And I know a lot of people get very, very protective of JavaScript as not being a class-based language and, and being all about prototypes. And uh, I, I'm actually... Um, I, I'm pretty uh, easygoing as far as people's preferred style. I think they should write the code that feels right to them. But if you're writing in a class-like style, there's a lot that you need to know about how to simulate that. And that's really why I wrote it. It wasn't to say, thou shalt write OO programs with classes. I remember when when I was reading it, the only part that I objected to a little was was the parts on the Wonderbar proto, because I, I think it's fun to mutate the prototype. But I understand <laughs> why it's dangerous, too. Uh -huh. I don't oh, think no, that's going to be terribly controversial because I felt like it was uh, pretty objective, honestly. You covered uh, both parts of the semicolon debate, all the like, kind of nasty, gross arguments that people get into. You, I felt like you covered them fairly like, okay, this is just how JavaScript works, and you didn't delve into uh, many, this is what I like. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was disappointed that there wasn't a section that said, don't forget to put semicolons everywhere, or never put <laughs> semicolons in, one or the other. No, I liked it. I liked how objective it was. My so, goal was to arm people with an understanding of the consequences of their choices. And, you know, between consenting adults, I think people can, can write the code they want to write. Um, I, I, I didn't want to end up with a book that was kind of so uncontroversial that it wasn't saying anything. But what I really wanted to get into was, look, you can have this debate. You can be on either side of the debate, but you better understand what the consequences are of your decisions. So yes. to me, it sounds a lot like um, JavaScript, the good parts. It's like, these are going to tear your head off if you don't do them. Is, is that kind of the direction you were heading? Or was it really more, you know, just here are the trade-offs of one decision or, or the other? Um, I think uh, the good parts is more opinionated than, than my book is. Um, For sure. I think, I think it's really trying to say, uh, actually, the, the way I like to look at it, and, and I think it's, this is a very appropriate thing, particularly for beginners. I like to think of it like uh, when you go bowling with little kids and they fill the gutters with those padded bumpers. So they kind of aren't really playing the full game of bowling, but it helps kind of get them into the, the form and the motion and the basic idea of the game. And eventually they can grow up and take the pads out and it's a little riskier, but now they're playing the full game. Uh, I think, you know, when you start with the good parts, it basically cuts out part of the language and says, don't use this, just don't even go near it. And that'll protect you from a lot of things, but it's also cutting out part of JavaScript. Yeah. So um, I think with my, my book, you know, what I'm trying to say is, well, here's, here's a little bit fuller picture, but you need to understand what the, um, the pros and cons of things are. Uh, the one thing about that is I did feel that the book had too much about ES3 shimming and not enough about ES5 is here, it's been here, it's even in Internet Explorer, use it. Interesting. I wonder what in particular you're thinking of. Well, just as I was reading through it, there was like a lot of, you're mentioning a lot of shims for ES3, but like... Oh, I'm, like object.create and stuff like that, yeah. But, I mean, which is good, but then there wasn't, I, I didn't feel like there was enough of, like, I'm letting you know about this problem if you're working with IE6, and I and, and I kind of wish that you would have said just IE6 instead of other browsers as this euphemism. 
right? <laughs> yeah, that's a because hard line. Because it's really just IE6, you know, and like what, Opera for Wii or something? Not but, entirely. But, I mean, I'm not Firefox actually an expert. One. <laughs> I'm okay, not so, actually an expert at all of the individual browsers, but I've certainly read a bunch of articles in preparation okay. where it was like, the BlackBerry browser does this, the various older versions of Firefox do that, and there actually were gotchas in more than just um, just IE6. But one thing that I, I really love-hated about the book <laughs> was almost every example you start out with like the worst possible way to do it. And my gut is just like churning inside and I'm like, please don't show people that. Please don't show people that. And then like I have to turn the page because the paragraph finishes and it's like, that's a terrible way to do it. This is the right way to do it. And then yeah. I'm like, Phew. it's like a roller coaster. Rebecca Murphy and I think Rick Waldron both pointed that out when they were reading drafts of the book. They were like, I am terrified of you publishing these bad ways of doing things. Even though you correct them, somebody's going to come and copy and paste it and, and, and just not notice that it's the bad way. Oh, what a sweet dictionary class. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried to do as much as I could. Was, uh, the publishers were really generous in letting me use color, and I tried to put red comments next to as many of the the negative examples as I could. So hopefully that, you know, is like a big red warning sign. Don't touch this code. Put the sure. Unicode poop symbol. <laughs> is the radioactive one. Is the code online anywhere where people can get it? Oh, God, I'm behind on that. I've got um, two of the seven chapters transcribed. Uh, they're on the, the GitHub repo, um, actually. Is, I should... that, is that something someone could just do? Like if a reader wanted to just transcribe the code examples and submit a pull request? I would welcome that, absolutely. Uh, cool. You can and see... fix the little typos? Yeah, so I also have an errata page. Uh, there definitely are a handful of, of typos, some of which are even in the code, and that's that's a shame. So hopefully in another printing, we'll fix some of the simpler typos. Uh, the it, it certainly, from what I saw, was nothing that you can't just like look at it and, and reasonably as a human discern, like, oh, he said add text here and set text here. He just renamed the function. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I want to point out that that for the people that are listening to this, like the kind of errata that's in there is definitely not something that's going to prevent you from being able to learn or follow the examples. It's just stuff where you have to be slightly above monkey intelligence. Yeah, and if you do find that you're confused by something like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, it might not hurt to just take a quick glance at the errata page and see, was this just a typo rather than, you know, you're misunderstanding something. But anyway, the GitHub repo is github uh, slash effectivejs slash code is where you can get the code samples and it's only chapters one and two right now. And yeah, please, if somebody wants to help out uh, get this get this transcribed faster, I'll be happy to accept pull requests. So to me, reading the book, I think there's two main parts to it. There's the first five chapters that teaches you the language and what the language has and every gotcha you can think of. And then there's chapter six and chapter seven, which are basically best practices, like how to design libraries, how to do concurrency. And I mean, there's nothing in the language of semantics or syntax there. It's just how to more effectively use the language on top of understanding how it works. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you see a similar split or is it just more of the same? No, absolutely. Um, I, and I think um, one of the things I really wanted to do was get at, I, I guess there's it's com a combination just of sort of best programming practices in general, but also styles of programming that I feel like JavaScript particularly fits nicely with, like that go with the grain of JavaScript. For example, um, I talk about uh, structural typing in item 57. That may be one of my favorite items in the book. I feel like structural typing is a perfect fit for a language like JavaScript, because first of all, with dynamic typing, you don't even have to declare an interface or anything. Some people call it duck typing. Um, it it just uh, it fits very smoothly with a dynamically typed language, but on top of that, JavaScript has the really concise object literals that make it super easy to construct an instance of a structural type. So while it's true that it's not kind of specific to JavaScript, structural typing is a concept that exists in lots of languages. I feel like it's a particularly good fit for JavaScript. Um, but it's true that six and seven are getting a little bit more into uh, kind of how to use the language effectively um, at a bit of a higher level and not as much about the mechanics of the language. Just especially chapter seven, like it starts out with don't block the event queue on IO. And I know the browser has always had non-blocking IO, 
but it's never really been an issue because the only APIs you get are non-blocking for the most part, unless you'd like to do a sync XHR. Mm-hmm. But now that we have Node, and I've been working with Node for three and a half years, it's like, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it, I like it that there's several items talking about these things that have come up as people try to use JavaScript in the server, and it's it's a bigger issue. Although I will say, as a Mozillian, uh, it's a problem that we've been dealing with for years in the internals of Firefox, because uh, the, the UI of Firefox is all implemented in uh, JavaScript and XBL, which is a kind of uh, earlier variant of the new um, uh, the newer Flexbox style of uh, uh, of CSS um, and HTML. Anyway, so the, the the JavaScript APIs that we have internal to the browser implementation. Uh, do have a lot of blocking I.O., and we do find that some of our performance issues in Firefox are because somebody was careless about blocking the main thread. Wait, did you oh. just say Mozillan? Yeah. <laughs> it rhymes <Mozilla>. with villain? <laughs> <laughs> I so, about it that way. I also want to point out that with the browser, there is there are issues now of, of blocking in such a way that it could prevent the, the user's interactions. In particular... Where, Joe, you were at the presentation where Aaron Frost was talking about doing motion detection, right? I only caught the tail end of it. Oh, okay. So, but that, that raises a very good point. Um, so he's taking an, an image that he's getting using the Get User Media API, and then he's running an algorithm on it that's going through, you know, all of these million pixels, um, and he's doing that every so often the way that he did it in the the presentation was he was only doing it every 200 milliseconds but if you were designing like a live motion tracking type system where you're iterating over video frames you can get in a situation where you need to follow one of those patterns of like process some of the data let the event loop continue for a loop process more of the data you know yeah um and actually item 65 talks about um that more specifically, like it's not only I/O, but it's also long-running computation that you want to make sure doesn't hog the the main thread. It's just exactly. cool that people are doing things in browsers now that could do long-running computations. Like people are starting to do some really interesting stuff in browsers that you could never do before. Absolutely. I, I'm going to have to his uh, Aaron Frost presentation notes because uh, since I mentioned it, it's pretty cool. One thing I really liked about the book was how you don't shy away from talking a little bit about some of the more low-level details, about how the language works and just how mm-hmm. computation works in general. Like, I think there's a lot of people who use JavaScript who don't come from a traditional computer science background. Mm-hmm. So you talk about, like, bits, and people might not know what bits are. Or like, mm-hmm. the numbers are made up of binary digits. Or you talk about stack frames and how a function call pushes a new thing onto the stack and stuff like that. I just thought that was really cool. And it's, it's done in a simple, um, easy way to understand, but it's also like giving you some real understanding of what's going on in the background without just glossing over things. Thanks. Yeah. I, um, one of the things I really cared about in writing this book was I didn't want it to come across. I mean, effective C++ is seen as this very serious book and it's, it's used by serious practitioners of serious programming. And I didn't want effective JavaScript to look like, you know, effective C++ light or the, like the, the kid sibling of, of the other effective books. Cause I think JavaScript is a serious programming language where, where you can do serious work. And I think, Programming is hard no matter what level you're programming at. And so I didn't want to shy away from uh, really getting into the more advanced topics. At the same time, you know, people have, have pointed out that this, this can be a little daunting for beginners. So I would kind of recommend for people who feel like, you know, one of the items they're reading is just kind of going over their head to just not worry about it and put that item down and, and, you know, maybe go on to some of the others and revisit it later. Maybe the first time they come across uh, a program using bitwise operators, they can go back at that point and, and revisit that, for example. To echo that sentiment, there are some things about JavaScript, and I don't come from a computer science background, but there are some things about JavaScript that I've kind of just accepted like, oh, you, you can't call array prototype sort method on strings because of something in the JavaScript internals, right? Uh, but come to read effective JavaScript, you real, you learn that strings are essentially immutable arrays. So the difference between the methods that you can call and the ones you can't call are whether or not they're manipulating the the existing string mm-hmm. uh, rather than 
returning a new one. And and that those kinds of like insights, also the way that like integers are stored in JavaScript engines and the way strings are stored, like the, they were, it was just a, it just helped me not shy away from a lot of the, oh, that's just how it works kind of uh, things, you know. So I, I, I love that aspect of the book. Great. The other thing that I thought was really interesting that I that I found myself doing a lot is you mentioned in the book about how asynchronous APIs should not call until the next turn of the event loop. Oh, <laughs> yes. I'm even so if you glad have, you said that. <laughs> yeah, you have that uh, even if you have that internally or you can immediately call it back, you should still wait till the next turn of the event loop so people can know not to block uh, or do some sort of expensive computation or uh, you break the contract. And I never even considered that as being part of the contract until you mentioned that. It's so subtle. Um, I, I really believe uh, that there's a lot of really subtle gotchas in designing asynchronous APIs that, that they're rare enough that to get bitten by and they're hard enough to diagnose that when they actually happen, you're not even sure why your program's going wrong. You're just like, wow, I've got this occasional bug and I can't figure out where it's coming from. And it may well be deep in the guts of an asynchronous API. And I have this feeling that that one uh, is actually out there and biting people, but it's it's a little hard to prove. But yeah, that, that one's important. Uh, I think it was uh, an article by Havoc Pennington talking about C-sharp APIs that crystallized that one for me. Uh, where he was basically making the same point um, in callback-based APIs. And I think he was talking about C-sharp there, but it, it applies just as well in JavaScript. Yeah, it was, I know it I've was heard, brilliant. Right. Yeah, I know I've heard lots of the, the promises people talk about that too. And one of the things that promises are supposed to do is always be async, make, make things that look async be async. <laughs> and it definitely carries over to just callback-based code. One of the subtle things that can go wrong is if you call it in the wrong stack and it throws an exception, uh, it's really subtle to get the catching of exceptions right. And uh, you, when you're writing one of those libraries, you have to think about every line of code so carefully and you get one thing wrong with exceptions and kind of everything goes wrong. So that's, that's definitely an area where you have to be super careful. Yeah. And even like, even like using, uh, for example, using functions to essentially recursive functions mm -hmm. um, to, to iterate on the async operations, things like that were just so insightful. But like I said, the book is just amazing. <laughs> I just loved it. Thanks. Yeah, recursion is one of those things that uh, I, I think it's seen as a pretty advanced thing um, by a lot of people. And in the functional programming world, it's, it's kind of bread and butter. People use it everywhere. In a language like JavaScript, if you're doing a synchronous program with recursion, you're actually likely to blow the stack if you have um, a lot of data. In fact, some languages like Python really punish you for using recursion, and they give you a really smaller stack that blows up sooner. Um, but when, when you're doing async stuff, when you want to do a loop asynchronously, you're actually forced to use recursion. So it's something that you can't really avoid learning once you start writing more asynchronous programs. Yeah, and on that note, it seems like I've I've read recently that JavaScript is going to try and do some sort of tail call optimization or or uh, something to make the synchronous recursion not blow up the stack. Is that is that true, or am I totally wrong on that? Uh, it's half right. So um, we're definitely uh, uh, the the committee's agreed to have um, what's called proper tail calls in ES six. Um, but that's only for one specific kind of recursion. That's for uh, tail recursion, which is basically when uh, the last thing that your function does is to return the result of calling another function. And so when you're returning, calling that other function, rather than keeping your stack frame around kind of pointlessly, you can actually pop your frame before you call the other function. That's actually only one implementation strategy, and a JS engine could do it differently. But but a, a reasonable way to think of it is before it calls the other function, it pops the current frame. So what that ends up doing is if you do a whole bunch of tail calls, like maybe just some long sequence of tail calls, uh, you're never going to be growing the stack because it'll keep popping and calling, popping and calling, popping and calling. Um, but that only works for tail recursion. So if you have uh, a, a recursive function call that's not a tail call, uh, your your stack is still going to grow, and eventually um, all the JS implementations will uh, will blow up. There are other programming languages where they'll actually continuously grow the stack. So kind of like 
like a linked list where uh, instead of an array, it can kind of keep growing forever. They'll grow your stack and they'll let you use as much recursion as you want to. It'll slow down eventually, but it'll keep growing. Um, but that uh, really is kind of different from the way the architecture of the JS engines works. So that's not likely to happen. So, okay. sorry, long story short, tail calls are happening, but not general recursion. Okay. The, the other takeaway is that there's going to be a hit R&B song called Popping and Calling. <laughs> so, so you say these are these are proper telcalls, not just implementation telco optimizations. I mean, what's the difference? Yeah, that's a subtle point. Um, and from the standpoint of the implementation, it's it's maybe not much different. But from the programmer's standpoint, what it means is you have a guarantee. The language mandates that an implementation must not grow the stack. Uh, without bound when you do tail calls. And that means that as a, as a programmer, uh, you can rely on that. Whereas with tail call optimization, it's just sort of a best effort. It's like the compiler will try to optimize this in some cases, but you can't count on it. So one analogy I make is imagine that for loops, uh, every time you started a new iteration of your for loop, uh, it pushed a stack frame. Well, you'd never use for loops because you, you wouldn't really be able to count on them uh, from not blowing up if you had too many iterations. Uh, and if you had a compiler that said, well, sometimes we're, our for loops will blow the stack and sometimes they won't, as a programmer, you still wouldn't be able to use it because you wouldn't be able to rely on it. But if the language mandates, your for loops must not grow the stack without bound, which of course, that is what the language mandates. It just doesn't bother saying it because with for loops, nobody expects the stack to but with tail calls, sort of historically, languages haven't had proper tail calls. So if you don't actually say it explicitly in standard, you must have proper tail calls, then in practice, the engines aren't going to implement proper tail calls and programmers won't be able to rely on them. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, we're, we're kind of getting into some of it too, uh, the more programming language, like academic stuff. Uh -huh. um, you mean you definitely have a background in that. How much of that came out in the book? Um, I think some of it does. Uh, it's kind of hard for me not to get into it. It's definitely um, one of my favorite topics. Uh, and, and you can probably also sort of related to that a lot of the programming languages world, um, like especially the research world, does a lot with functional programming. And so I have a lot of background in functional programming. And I think um, you can see that coming out in the book too. So um, you know, talking about bind and currying, which I should have called partial application and uh, structural types and recursion. Those are all functional programming topics. Um, and, uh, you know, when you talk about getting into some of the internals, like how stacks work and it, when you're doing recursive calls, that's certainly a programming language topic. But I did try to keep it always from the standpoint of the user of the language. There's a sort of disease that PL people get of being so obsessed with the technology itself. So I really wanted to keep the book focused on, even if I'm talking about sort of nerding out on PL details, it really should be only, only in as much as it matters to the programmer. That's really cool. You yeah. should, uh, you should talk to some of my professors. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the coolest, like, tricks that I took away from the book, by the way, was the partial application with bind, uh, particularly how that cleans up your for each loops and basically all those asynchronous APIs that take callbacks. That was just so cool. Cool. Do you guys know if like underscore uh, and all those bind implementations does kind of a similar thing? Or I'm, I'm pretty sure they do. All the code I've looked at does. Cool. So one other thing I wanted to talk about, too, that I really liked, um, I feel like lots of JavaScript books will try and kind of pad their pages by including, like, API references and, I don't know, DOM API stuff. And that was one thing I actually really liked about this book, is it's just JavaScript. It doesn't have anything that you can just Google on or look on MDN for, you know. But it's it's just the the interesting stuff that is useful to have someone explained to you, not like, what's the name of this function that you use to select something by its ID or whatever. Yeah. Although, so it feels very, very uh, streamlined, I guess. I, I would argue it would have been, it would have been nice to have a section where it, 
it gave references to other good documentation because I think the book is great documentation. Most of the documentation online for JavaScript sucks really bad, and it would have been nice for like an other resources section with a link to Mozilla Developer Network and a link to the Node API. You know, so anytime you put that stuff in print, it goes out of date so fast. Like, well, MDN isn't going to disappear anytime soon. I mean, soon. I hope not, but it could. And then in ten years, like there will be this link. Like I, I read these books from '95, and they have links to like just these defunct websites that don't exist anymore. So I don't know. I, I, I like it. I would say it's a net gain, but I think it's a fair point. And I, you know, also if if I had enough links that it started going stale, we could always do another edition of the book. I, I assume eventually there will be another edition. For example, once ES6 ships, um, we'll want to update the book to have more stuff based on ES6. Um, but yeah, I think the, I, I take your point. I think um, some some references to uh, kind of more information or more reference material wouldn't hurt. But still, the fact that it's just about the heart of JavaScript and yeah, I love on, that. I love yeah, that's awesome. And it acknowledges multiple platforms and also the history that you have to deal with in practice. Yep. Do you um do you think there's a place for a book um, about like DOM integration, an, an effective book about DOM integration? I bet there could be. I think I'm probably not the person to write it because I really was writing about what I know, which is the language and the DOM is. I really wouldn't call myself an expert at it, but um, I think there is there are so many gotchas in the DOM, both in terms of just weird API design as well as interoperability issues where things were unspecified and different browsers do it differently. Yeah, I, I think there's probably a lot. In fact, there's sort of a precedent for that in the Effective series. The first book, Effective C++, uh, has a separate book, Effective STL, which is about the C++ STL library. So um, I think that's that's not unheard of. That that would probably make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is not on the topic of the book, but it's something I think a lot of listeners would be interested in. I'm wondering... What what kind of uh, guidance would you give to somebody who wants to learn JavaScript really well? I've thought about that question a lot, um, and I I think it's it's it varies a lot based on a person's background. Um, so I think for people who already have some programming ex experience in other languages, I think my book is actually a pretty good place to start because um, you know they're not going to need the kind of basics of programming and and uh, some of the more introductory topics. What they really want to know is how is JavaScript different from the stuff that I already know? And I think this book kind of hits that pretty succinctly. Uh, for somebody who's more of a, a beginner programmer, I think it's missing probably too much introductory material. Um, and and there's a lot of good stuff out there. I mean, I like uh, Marijn Haverbeck's book, uh, Eloquent JavaScript. Uh, I actually have been meaning to read Cody Lindley's book, um, JavaScript Enlightenment, but I haven't had a chance to read that yet. A lot of people swear by that one, too. Um, and then there's, you know, if, if you're not in a hurry to get straight into JavaScript, I'm actually a big fan of the book How to Design Programs, which is using Scheme or actually the Racket dialect of Scheme. But it's a maybe a little more academic, but a really good introduction, introduction to programming uh, from kind of a functional programming perspective. And, and how, how about outside of, uh, outside of JavaScript? What if, what if somebody, I mean, is there anything that you could tell programmers on how to, I guess, up their game or, or what's influenced you the most as a programmer yourself? I guess I just really like to hang around people who are smarter than me. That, that for me, is, is the way I've learned the most. So find, so, your, find your community. And that community could be of any, any sort. You know, it, it, For me, a lot of it was grad school where I was actually physically around a whole bunch of uh, just incredible programmers. Uh, but in this day and age, with GitHub and IRC and all, all sorts of online resources, I think it's really about find yourself some open source projects, get involved, and just hang out with uh, talented programmers and try to learn from them what you can. I like that. Based on what I so, what I read out of your book, I imagine when you want to get around with people that are smarter than you, it's hard for the three of you to get together. <laughs> That's right. Okay, but I mean, even I mean, I look at Mozilla and like Tim Tim Disney. We had him on uh, for macros, and I was like, "This is an intern." Like, 
Are you kidding me? This is the intern quality that these guys have. These guys are insane. Yeah, yeah. Insane smart over there. So, yeah, that's uh, so he interned uh, with my group at, at Mozilla Research, and and we've got uh, a just incredible program. Our group is phenomenal, and uh, I just go to work every day hoping nobody will notice that I don't belong there. <laughs> so. I think the biggest thing I took from the book is to not prematurely optimize my code. Uh, now, let, let me explain what I mean. I, I've been doing Node for the last three years, and one of, the, one of the big pushes in Node is to make your servers fast, make your servers faster, make them really, really fast and faster than everything out there. And so I've learned all these techniques, like if you manually cache your array length and all these things that make your code faster. And then reading the book, I'm reading things like, well, Actually, no, you shouldn't call back synchronously, even if it's slightly faster. Worry more about proper API than just being slightly faster. And it's balanced me out a little. And so that, that was useful. That's good. I, I think that's um, kind of the, the, a perennial challenge in programming. Uh, you know, performance is a feature, but if you have a highly performant program that's just doing the wrong thing, it's not of much use to anybody either. And... You know, hopefully sometimes you can find that you can divide things up so that the really good interfaces, the really well-engineered stuff is sort of the, the external interface to your program and you can just optimize some part of the internals and get the performance you need without having to sacrifice the right API that your, your clients are going to really like. Yeah, it's a tough balance. Like on the, like the don't call back synchronously thing. I've been telling people for months, like, well, there are some cases where it's okay because you really need the performance. And I'm sure that's been misunderstood to mean that you can call back synchronously from an async function. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, there, there are cases where it makes a huge difference in performance, especially if you don't have a really fast next tick or set immediate or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, if, if this becomes enough of a bottleneck, the... Um the platforms can kind of do better than uh, set timeout, which is throttled to four milliseconds and just just horrible from a performance perspective. Uh, but yeah, I think this exact issue, I think I heard it came up in the Windows 8 API where they have a promises library th that sometimes does call callbacks synchronously. And I imagine that decision was made on the basis of performance, but I'm, I'm not sure it's not going to come back to bite them. There's a, another similar one you have later in Chapter 6. You, you distinguish between arrays and array-like. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's a gotcha. How many times has someone tried to push onto the arguments? And there's no push method. Yeah. I mean, if performance didn't matter, you would just always turn it into an array or change the language so that arguments is always an array. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But instead, we just document clearly, well, this thing is array-like. This thing is a real array. And I had the same argument for callbacks. I'm like, this async function can call back synchronously. It's documented. Be warned. But, I mean, maybe that one's not worth it ever. I don't know. I think that one's useful, even if you're not thinking about the performance aspect of it, just to know the difference between whether an API is expecting a true array or an array-like, because otherwise you'll just possibly pass it the wrong thing. So that's sort of, at the least, about kind of clear documentation. It kind of echoed your own sentiments about uh, structural typing, too. Mm -hmm. So, Another thing I really like that Tim kind of touched on is JavaScript can feel like an easy target for people to pick on sometimes. Like, <laughs> oh, what the crap, there's double equals and triple equals, and sometimes they do different things, and like my variables don't get declared when I think they will be, and I don't know. There, there are lots of um, things that are different about the language and people coming from other languages tend to look at it and say, those are all awful things. And cause, cause they're different than what I expect. That means they're terrible. And you just kind of clearly explain the rules. You're not like, you, you don't apologize. You just say, this is how the language works. Um, and, and lay it out very clearly without kind of pandering to that JavaScript is crazy. WTF JS kind of thing. I don't know. The worst, the worst he gets is to say it's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There, I think there are some mistakes in JavaScript, and there are some that, uh, you know, behind closed doors, I'll I'll get pretty upset about. But the fact is, I think it's a lovely language, and I think you can do a lot of great things with it. And it got some really important things right. I think, uh, you know, the fact that it got closures right, 
and that it has the just really beautiful literal syntax for arrays, functions, and uh, object literals, you can go so far with just that core of the language. Uh, and and yeah, th I'm not, this book is not about apologizing for JavaScript. This is like you are using JavaScript, whether you want to or you have to, you're using it. So this is this is how to use it well. Yeah, so you might as well know it if you're going to use it. Yeah. So you, you said that sometimes you get angry. Do you like march into Brendan Ike's office and have it out? <laughs> Brendan said he's past apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> how cool yeah. is it to actually, you know, work at the same place as that guy? Oh, man. I, you know, I... I don't want to lionize him too much, but it's it's just been an incredible privilege to work with Brendan. I've actually known him now for seven years, uh, and I've worked full time at Mozilla for uh, about three. And it's yeah, I can't say enough. It's amazing to work with him. He's he's an incredible person. Yeah, he seems like a genuinely good guy, and like the amount of uh, I guess people are just being tools to him. You know, like he is he takes it all pretty pretty professionally. He does better than I do. Yeah, it just <laughs> off his back. I'm impressed. Which, please don't take that as encouragement to give him more crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. The uh, I hate to digress just a, too much, but but one of the things I really liked with the array and the array likes kind of stuff is you also touched on the difference between using like the number constructor and the implicits, <laughs> and it it was really interesting to me to see how JavaScript uh, kind of. It, it almost has like a sibling class structure for those primitives that it that it leverages. I'm not sure I know what you mean. When you when you do a primitive, like say you type in the number fifteen, it's it's not the same as doing new number fifteen. It's, it's absolutely, the primitives versus the the wrapper classes. Yeah, yeah, the wrapper classes. That's what they're called. I'm sorry. Uh, Scala has a similar notion of those, and I'm trying to not connect the words. But yeah, that's right, the wrapper classes. I think Scala probably inherited that uh, directly from Java because, and JavaScript definitely inherited that from Java. You know, back in the day, JavaScript, despite the fact that in this day and age, people really just think it's unfortunate that they have the, that it has the word Java in it because the languages are so different. But originally, it really was designed to be a companion language to Java. So in some ways, um, they sort of tried to keep them in sync with each other. And Java had this concept of primitive types that were not objects because uh, basically it was a it was a compromise for performance. And this kind of goes back to Tim's point of um, premature optimization. It's this sort of painful distinction that there are these special, not quite object values that sometimes act like objects and sometimes don't. Um, and another way that people can design a language is actually really to go all the way and say that everything really behaves as an object. Um, but JavaScript and Java, at least back in the day, I think they were able to get better performance by having these special primitives. Yeah. So I think it'd be a shame to go a podcast without talking about semicolons. And you, you boldly approach this issue, this minefield, um, <laughs> and, and talk about the rules of automatic semicolon insertion. Was this a reaction? Like, did this happen after that debate kind of blew up? Uh, I think I was writing it after the debate blew up, but I already knew that I was going to write about it. Uh, the fact that there was this debate probably affected the way I wrote about it. It probably was enough. It was getting on my nerves enough that I decided not to pick a side. Yeah. Uh, to, to tell you the truth, I'm just going to go ahead because, you know, hey, why not? Let's, let's debut Dave Herman's opinion of ASI on JavaScript Jabber. Uh, my preferred style is probably weird enough that nobody else in the world wants to use it. I actually use semicolons basically everywhere, except if it's uh, at the end of a block. So if the next token is a right curly, I always drop the semicolon. That makes no sense at all, but somehow there it just seems so clearly unnecessary. It feels so awkward. <laughs> yeah. How many uh, parsers have you written? <laughs> Quite a few. Um, I mean, I think another part of it is, you know, sometimes you'll write like an array dot map with a callback function and the callback is just doing some pure computation. Like maybe you do array dot map function X return X plus one. And what I really, really want there is an expression syntax rather than the clunky return statement. And leaving off the semicolon makes it feel just a little bit more like an expression. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, my golden rule is uh, be consistent with whatever the, the, the rules of, you know, the house rules of the code base I'm working on. So I feel yeah. like it'll make this, this section makes everybody happy because it explains why automatic semicolon insertion happens and it explains the rules of it really simply and concisely. But then you also, I don't know, you still show semicolons and talk about how you can use them if you want. So it, it feels very uh, nonpartisan. Well, that, that's, that's the big thing with the rules is, um, you follow the rules until you understand why they're there, and then you can start deciding when to break them. Mm -hmm. and, the, the one thing I think is inexcusable is people going around and claiming that, uh, oh, it's straightforward, just you don't have to use semicolons. It's <laughs> <laughs> simply false. Like, you have to know the rules, because if you just leave off your semicolons, there are gotchas. So, um, you know, it's fine if you want to take advantage of semicolon insertion, but, but if you don't know the rules you will get bitten yeah all so, right are, are there in, any other angles that we want to cover before we get into the picks yeah i just want to ask one more question now okay. why why is it that you didn't cover a negative uh, zero and positive zero in your book uh i can't remember if i thought about including that at some point um so i mostly try to get by as if there was no such thing as negative zero um and uh, even triple equals treats it as the same as uh, zero, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, by and large, you can mostly just pretend that it's the same. There are, you know, a few examples where um, it'll make your program behave just slightly differently. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, I just haven't come across the scenarios where it bites you. So I think mostly it just kind of didn't make that that first level list. So you just don't, you just didn't feel like it was worth the space on the page because it's just not that big of a point to understand. I feel like you can get by never even knowing there's such a thing as negative zero, but I may be missing some critical gotcha that, that, that means that that's not true. So I, I encourage anybody who's listening who knows better than I do to, to uh, educate me about that. Just really quick. I want to mention the is nan thing. Just that little, there's, there's one tip about checking for not a number and yeah. how the isNan function is kind of broken because it can coerce stuff into things that are actually not a number when they, I don't know. So it can, it can have inconsistent behavior. And yeah. I thought that was so cool that I tweeted about it. Like, here's how you actually check if something is a number or not. The mm -hmm. check if it's equals to itself with the triple equals. And so many people were like, ha, dude, that's nice. But you know, there's an isNan function, right? Like, <laughs> It's just funny. It's it's not widely known. It's really useful. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that's one of those like where I'd use the word unfortunate <laughs> in the book. <laughs> and should not coerce its argument, but it's too late to change. Yep. yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Tim, do you want to start us off? I'm going to do some shameless self-project promotion today. And I've been designing a new language for the last two weeks. And it's on my GitHub under Jack. And a lot of the things I like about JavaScript are in the language, and all the things I don't like aren't in the language. And who knows if it'll ever become anything real, but it sure is fun to make something. Cool. We'll put a Does link in the show notes. Does it run? Um, Will it blend? It, it, it'll run soon. I keep changing the syntax every other day because people give me feedback, and I realize it was terrible. What, the feedback or the stuff you did? <laughs> no, the feedback's good. Although uh, certain people at Mozilla keep trying to get me to make Lisp. <laughs> not, not, not Dave. <laughs> Goes by Gozala, or not? Not Lisp. Yeah, Closure. Yeah, yeah, it's Rockley. He's a huge Closure fan. Indeed, and and Closure is a nice language, but it's not the language I want to make. So somebody else already made it, I think. Yeah, and they implemented it on JavaScript and Java and what else? It's got a bunch of backends. Anyway, so I, I guess my pick really is making languages is fun and. Maybe I can link some resources to that, or, or Dave knows a bunch too. Yeah. Oh, gosh. making a language. Uh, it's uh, it's probably good. To, I don't know. These days, I've been recommending to a lot of people SICP, Structure and Interpretation of um, Computer Programs. Uh, it's not like when you finish that book, you're not going to know how to make a language, but it gives you a lot of ways of thinking about writing interpreters and building languages. Cool. AJ, what are your picks? A technical pick is putting constants on the left. 
because if you have an <laughs> if statement with your constant on the left, it will never, ever, 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 ever be accidentally assigned to. It will throw an exception. God bless America, and God bless every language that can support that, which isn't C++. <laughs> okay. Also, I am starting to do some screencasts, and I'm putting them up on YouTube, and I put a link in the show notes to one where I'm talking about Amazon Web Services and just showing how to sign up for their one-year free VPS-type uh, thing that they call it EC2, and I am doing consulting, so I'm going to pick me and my screencasts, start looking out for them. They're coming. Hopefully, I'll have some cool stuff. And uh, if you're looking for somebody to hire, I'm available for short-term work. Cool. Jameson, what are your picks? Okay, I've got two. I need to get back to some non-programming picks. These are both programming picks again. One is this blog post called Notes on Distributed Systems for Youngbloods. I guess Youngbloods is what they said instead of like beginning programmers or noobs or something. I don't know. Um, And it just talks about all the tricky problems that come in writing distributed systems. And as someone who's running into these problems, it was really good to see um, an overview of some of the ones we've already found and some that are looming ahead of us just laid out really clearly and concisely. It's it's a great read. And I think it'll probably be one of those classics that people post around for a long time. And then my next one is just a gist. Um, I've been doing a lot with Ember lately, not putting full time into it. So I get into it for a while and then leave and then come back for a while and stuff. And it's really powerful. It's also really frustrating at times. So this is um, Polotech. I can't remember his real name again. But he, he talks about his experiences using Ember and some of the gotchas he's found and the tricky things. And then Tom Dale, one of the core Ember guys, comes in and comments on the gist and just goes through all of his comments and really um, nicely kind of says, thanks for the feedback and you're right about this. And we need to change this. It's just really cool. And then corrects some of his misunderstandings. So it's really cool to see this interaction between um, two people talking about this framework I use a lot, and I also learned a bunch of things about it. So I'll post those in the show notes. If you use Ember, you should look at the gist. If you don't, you might not care that much. But the distributed systems one is really good for everybody. All right. Merrick, what are your picks? Um, I'm going to pick this hip-hop artist named Greaves. He's just awesome. He's from the Northwest, and he he's just got some good jams. And aside from that, I'm going to pick the Scala programming language. Learning Scala has just taught me tons. It's kind of a a happy mix between object-oriented and functional programming that uh, it's really affected the way that I write JavaScript. So, Cool. Joe, what are your picks? Uh, so my first pick is going to be an, a music artist, uh, Antoine Dufour, D-U-F-O-U-R. He's a guitarist, and he just has the most amazing it's kind of like a mix between sort of a classical and spanish mostly and then maybe a little bit of new age um just instrumental no words no singer uh he does some uh duets with some other people and it's just it's fantastic music and uh for anybody that's listening if you do happen to listen to him he has a song called tango agricole and I've heard that song in a movie somewhere, and I, for the life of me, cannot find out what movie. So if you, if anybody out there figures that out, please let me know over Twitter what movie that song was in, because it's just driving me nuts. And then I want to pick um, Torchlight 2, the game. I picked it up over the Christmas break and have been playing it a bunch, and it's a sweet game. I like it a lot better than Diablo 3. Uh, I like the cartoony style of the graphics. It's been a really fun game. And for my third pick, I want to pick the Appliness magazine. Uh, it's a, just a digital magazine, and um, they have a really a lot of cool articles in there. You can get it on your iPad for free, or I think you can read it online as well for free. But it's a really sweet magazine, all about development topic, topics. All right. Sounds good. Um, I'll go next and then we'll let Dave go last. Um, so my picks, my first pick is something that my wife got me for Christmas. It's called a power mat and it's one of those magnetic induction charger device things. And so you can get what they call doors. They're just the little magnetic squares that let your device charge. You can get them on like phone cases and stuff, or you can just get the power mat um, it's kind of a universal one that has a mini USB and adapters for most of the devices out there. 
and uh, I really like it. It's it's just you know I just wind up switching my devices off of it all day, and and so everything's always charged, and it's really really kind of nice. I'm not sure how well it travels, though it'll probably go with me next time I go anywhere. Um, my second pick is um, something that I got at CES. Um, they gave me a review copy. Um, the the only issue I really have with it is that it doesn't have the lightning adapter for my iPhone 5. Instead, it's got the 30-pin adapter, so I can use it with my iPad. And what it is, is it's, uh, the company is called Fuse Chicken. And you can find them at FuseChicken.com. Sounds delicious. What it is, is it has, on one end it has the USB plug, and on the other end it has the 30-pin the adapter for the the iPod or whatever. And uh, it's this flexible, bendable um, charging cord. And uh, so you can use it as a stand if you don't want to plug it in, or you can plug it in and then use it, you know, as a stand anyway to hold up whatever it is that you want to, um, wh- whatever you want to have up and off the desk and kind of up where you can see it. So anyway, um, those are my picks, and I'll put links to them in the show notes. And we'll we'll throw it over to Dave. Dave, what are your picks? Uh, well, I'm going to be greedy and take three. Um, so uh, the first pick I want to talk about is, uh, we mentioned it briefly, I think, um, the Rust programming language. This is a language that uh, my group has been working on at, at Mozilla Research for a couple of years. Um, it was originally started by Graydon Hoare, and um, the, the team has, has grown, and uh, it's a, just an incredible team. The, the, the way to think about Rust is... Uh, a replacement for C++ that has sort of the same performance level that C++ does, but that's safer and better at uh, concurrency and parallelism. Uh, so Rust is at 0.5 right now. We're going to hit 0.6 probably this quarter, and our hope is to hit 1.0 by the end of 2013. So, um, you know, it's still changing a little bit, but it's definitely stabilizing, and it's definitely at a point where you can start playing with it and uh, uh, and trying it out. And the reason for Rust's existence, uh, the reason why we're doing it at Mozilla, is my second pick, which is another project I'm really excited about, a project called Servo. So, uh, uh, you know, every browser has its, has its engine. Um, uh, at, at Mozilla, we, have, we use Gecko. Uh, a bunch of browsers use WebKit. <laughs> but all of these are kind of based on kind of aging 90s era technology. Uh, and they're, and they're, there's enough competition moving quickly, but Servo is really about rethinking, redesigning the entire guts of the browser to try to take advantage of modern hardware and to try to be more secure. So Rust was designed to support Servo. Servo is implemented in Rust. So that's just kind of getting started, but uh, we already have like a little bit of functionality. You can you can render some basic pages with it. Uh, and I expect to see a lot more activity in Servo uh, in the new, it, you know, in 2013. Do you anticipate uh, uh, Firefox switching over to that eventually? Or? So, uh, Servo right now is a research experiment, and we're not really limiting it to what its future could be. It could end up being a totally separate browser, or it could end up being a part of Firefox. But one of the things we want to be um, open about is how much we can break web compatibility. Um, you know, if it, within Firefox, we have to be absolutely web compatible. But um, uh, but if we're thinking about possibly a new browser for the future, maybe we can say, well, we can get much better performance if there are some things that we break compatibility with. So so basically the answer is we're not going to commit to that until we know better how well it works. Very cool. It looks like, uh, I mean, maybe for your the mobile future you guys are working on too. That's really cool stuff. Yeah. It's, so with mobile, multi-core and GPUs are just as important. So, so yes. sorry, really level. But uh, basically, the 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 nature of hardware is completely changing from what it was ten years ago, and that's happening across the board: desktops, laptops, uh, tablets, phones. We're already seeing eight-core uh, phones coming out this year. So, software has to change to keep up with the hardware, and that's really what these projects are about. So, my third pick is not. Mozilla at all. Uh, my uh, wife and I are expecting our first child in about a month, and Rick Waldron, who is a totally cool guy, uh, sent us this gift. And we're not actually telling people what, what sex the baby is, but uh, he got this cool sort of gender-neutral gift called the Ruminate. So the Ruminate, I think, was designed 
by some engineering women from Stanford who wanted to create something that would be kind of appealing to both boys and girls. I think they might have been focused more on girls, but it could be just as good for boys. Uh, it's like an engineering toy crossed with a dollhouse. So you get to like play house, but you also get to put pieces together and make things work. And I think it's such a cool toy that I've been buying it for all of my friends who have kids. Awesome. That looks really, really cool. Yeah, it looks like it's aimed at girls, but I think my son would like it just as much. So <laughs> that that's great. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thanks for coming, Dave, and thanks for writing the book. It, it's It's an awesome book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. I don't think we have any announcements of anything coming up. I did set up a mailing list for the um, for the podcast, and eventually I'll start emailing out in advance so that you know what's coming in the in future episodes. So go sign up for that, and hopefully we can start uh, sending those out soon. And uh, if you're interested in learning Ruby on Rails, I'm going to be teaching a course starting in March. You kind of get unlimited access to me for eight weeks in learning Rails, and you can find that at railsrampup.com. Other than that. Uh, or it looks like AJ has something that he wants to announce real fast, and then we'll wrap up the show. Yeah, I just want to let everybody know that Open West Conference is coming. It used to be called Utah Open Source, but now it's being expanded to be a regional conference. There's a wide variety of topics that you can choose from, basically anything open sourcey. So I want to see you there. All right, sounds good. Um, yeah, go sign up, Open West Conference. It's openwest.org slash CFP, and... Uh, yeah, that's it. We'll we'll wrap it up. We'll catch y'all next week.